we're going to talk about the gospel. What about it? See, there's a lot of confusion surrounding the most fundamental question of all time. What is the gospel? In today's age, the message of the gospel is convoluted. The message of the gospel is now confused with other gospels. In other words, people have replaced the gospel of Jesus Christ with a different gospel. For some, the message of the gospel is another superstitious tall tale. It might as well be another story about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or or some fairy tale, uh, whatever animation character you can think of. The, this question, what is the gospel? It's not difficult to comprehend. And it's a question that Apostle Paul is founded on. In our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 4, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel. He reminded them of the gospel because the Corinthians church was a spiritually troubled church. Paul founded the Corinthians, founded the Corinthian church, and after he left elders to supervise the church. They spiral into sinfulness. At that time, it was some form of division amongst the congregation. Sexual immorality was running rampant in the church. Men sleeping with their father's wives. In other words, there were men having sex with their mother-in-laws. There were also Men and women having sex outside of marriage. And there were church individuals who felt as if they were better than everybody else because they had the gift of prophecy or had the gift of speaking in tongues. Another reason that Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel is because the Corinthians passively believe in a different gospel. This is what I mean. Throughout chapter 15, Paul dedicated the entire chapter to refute other beliefs about the resurrection. For example, the doctrine of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in angels, nor did they believe in spirits. And particularly, they did not believe that humans can be raised from the grave. The philosophical doctrine of the Sadducees could have infiltrated the Corinthian church, influencing them to believe that bodily resurrection was impossible. For example, in Mark 12, verse 18, the Sadducees debated our Lord trying to entrap him with his own words concerning marriage and the resurrection of the dead. So they asked Jesus about a hypothetical scenario. They asked him, what if a widow 
husband died. And her, her, her brothers, put it this way, the law of Moses permits that her brothers, the widows on the, ah, permits that the brothers of her deceased must produce children for their deceased brothers, brothers behalf by marrying their brother's widow. After they made this statement to Jesus, they asked a stupid question. They said, but if all the brothers die, and who married the widow after the resurrection, who will marry the brother's widow? In other words, who will marry the wife, although she was married to all seven brothers? Furthermore, there was other heretical doctrines concerning the resurrection of the gospel, which surfaced from two individuals, Amenaeus and Phyllisus. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, Paul said that he handed Hamanaeus and Philetus over to Satan so that they may not blaspheme because they were stating that the resurrection has already taken place. And according to Hamanaeus and Philetus' belief, the only way to obtain this resurrection is that you must acquire special knowledge. That will allow you to know endless truths about spiritual matters while you're here living on earth. See, Hamanias and Philetus believe in Gnosticism, which means that all spiritual things come through the channel of special knowledge. In other words, the more that you acquire this special knowledge the more spiritual doors will open up to you and you will become spiritually transformed here on earth. So it is possible that the Corinthian church believe in Gnosticism, which makes the resurrection of Christ empty of its power. Because if you are a studious person who believes that knowledge is the answer to all life's question, then you too are a Nazi. And this is what Hamanias and Philistines believe in. So what Paul had to do, he had to reel the Corinthian church back to the gospel because the church lost sight of what the gospel is. First Corinthians chapter 15 is devoted to one subject of which the gospel stands upon. As we survey, survey 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 15, we will observe the sinfulness of and the every problem that the Corinthian church had, which will help us to understand why Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel. Our church sociocultural concepts demands us to re- be reminded of the gospel. We, too, are in need not to only to be reminded of the gospel, but to be reminded daily. Every day we use technology to wake ourselves up. In the morning, we use technology to remind ourselves of weddings, birthdays, or of social events, or even to job interviews. But how often... 
Do you remind yourself of the gospel of Jesus Christ when someone curses at you? Or when your co-worker treats you unfairly? Or when an institution maligns you? Or when another student bully you? How often do you remind yourself when your child disobeys your instructions? When you remind yourself of the gospel, you will come to an understanding that the gospel is about Christ who was treated far worse than you are being treated now. As we unpack these four verses, we will discuss several subpoints that pledge the American Christian church. By doing so, we will discuss three questions concerning the gospel. The first question, we will speak on what is not the gospel. Second question, what are the implications of the gospel? And third question, the most important question that we need to answer is what is the gospel? Let us discuss the first question. What is not the gospel? The gospel is not about good deeds. In today's society, people think that they are good people because they do good deeds. In some form or fashion, everybody thinks they are a philanthropist. Ask a person why does he or she thinks that they are a good person. They will tell you, I do not steal, I do not lie, I do not harm anyone, and I'll always try to treat other people fairly. People equal their goodness as if they are a righteous person. And to think this way is a morally misleading misconception. When Crystal and I went to Walmart last weekend, we was looking for curtains, I believe, whatever it was shopping at Walmart for. And we asked a representative in Walmart, can you point us to this particular item that we need to get? So she did. And what interests me about this particular woman is that she was a Muslim. Not just a Muslim, but a white American Muslim. You don't see plenty white American Muslim who was born and raised to be converted over to Islam. So as she was walking, I'm just looking at her hijab, which is the wrapping of her head, the scarf that wraps her head and her hair. And I'm just pondering how in the world she converted to Islam. So as she was taking us, taking us uh, to the spot that we needed to go, Crystal uh, went on, and I stopped, and I asked her a couple of questions, because I'm a curious guy. I asked her, how, I asked her, how did she convert to Islam? She said that she converted to Islam through her Pakistani boyfriend that she met over the Internet. The interesting part is that she never met her boyfriend in person. She met her boyfriend through Skyping to another country which her boyfriend was in. So as I'm listening to her and wondering how in the world this is happening, 
she gave me more information about, okay, well, I am a Muslim woman because I am now married to a Muslim man. And my husband and I, well, my husband is not from America. He was born and raised in Pakistan, and he's now just trying to get over here to the States. So I'm, I'm just pondering, like, okay, well, I think this is, a, I know this is an arranged marriage, but I don't know if he's just using her to get into the States to become a citizen. But that's beside the point. When I kept on talking to her about Islam, I compared Christianity and Islam together. And she didn't have an idea that I was a Christian because I was speaking in objective terms. I just compared Christ and Muhammad, uh, Islam and salvation and et cetera, et cetera. And as she was just talking to me, she said, I am just glad that I'm not a pagan. I used to be a pagan. I said, do you have any assurance of, of, of salvation? Because I know that Islam doesn't grant that. She said, no, I don't have any assurance. I'm just glad I'm not a pagan. I'm glad I, so I'm glad that I'm just, I'm just not a pagan. So what she did and what she said is that, well, what I asked her is that, how are you going to get into heaven? She said, well, just by my good deeds. See, church, this is, good deeds doesn't make you a good person. For those who are here believing that you are a good person, allow me to say you are not a good person. Nor you are a righteous person. Scripture says, no, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Furthermore, the prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteous deeds are like disgusting, filthy rags. What the prophet Isaiah is saying is this. Your righteous deeds are like a polluted rag that you use to wipe your toilet wood and you use that same rag to clean your dishes. Your righteous deeds are only good if your righteous, if your deeds are being controlled by the Holy Spirit. If you ask me, can a non-Christian do good deeds? Of course he can. So can Hitler. But even the sinner doing good deeds is still not enough because that individual is doing good deeds out of his sinful, selfish heart. The gospel, the next point, the gospel is not about self-help. I hear people say, the Bible says, God help those who help themselves. There's a problem with this particular statement. One, it's not found in scripture. Two, it's unbiblical. Because if you're helping yourself, then you don't need help from God. This is the type of preaching that is being preached in pulpits. Inspirational messages like the question is not, do you have a problem? The question is, does the problem have you? Or 
Life is always good because you know that you are a winner. This inspirational self-help preaching is contrary to the gospel message. A key component to the gospel is that God help those who cannot help themselves. When you come to the understanding that you are a sinner in that you cannot help yourself nor save yourself from your sinful plight, it is then that you will identify that God alone is one, is the one who can save and help you. I hope for the third point that Arlen and Vit won't meet me outside and beat me up. <laughs> because the gospel is not about music. Anytime that I have asked someone what is the gospel, they say gospel music. Typically, I've been to churches that will perform musical songs, singers receiving the attention because of their vocal ability, fall, smoke, arising from the stage as if I was in a concert. And it always seemed that the more loudly that you sing, the more holy you become. Or you were. So if you hear people say, we had a good time at church, what they're really saying is that we were being entertained at church. And they did not come to hear the sound teaching and preaching of the gospel. Let me put it this way. One writer said, the gospel immediately brings to mind organs and drums, the emotionally charged sound, soul-stirring voices of Kurt Flank, uh, Franklin, Marvin Sapp. Furthermore, the writer said, gospel music is little more than religiously disguised inspirational performances with little or none of the biblical message of salvation through Jesus Christ. The gospel, next point, the gospel is not about the preacher. We see this popularity contest in America. Churches, people come in droves to flock to churches to just to see a pastor. Instead of wanting to hear and worship the Lord. And to hear from the Lord. We watch professing pastors on television shows like the TV sitcom Preachers of L.A. Presenting themselves to a celebrity type status. Pastors should never allow anyone to elevate them. To a higher status than Christ. For example, in Catholicism, the Pope is elevated to a higher status as if he was sinless. Catholicism recognized the Pope as the mediator between man and God. But we know this is not the case. Nevertheless, this popularity contest is nothing new. The Corinthians church 
conducted a popularity contest, and they wanted to be recognized by the superstars of their time. So what they did was elevated the apostles, preachers, and evangelists to the celebrity status. See, you thought that TLC Network that broadcast Preachers of L.A. was the first to do that, but no. The Corinthian church did it first. It was just not broadcast on TV. Their show was Preachers of Corinth. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, Paul wrote, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter. Then you had your fundamentalist group who took the religious route and said, oh, I follow Christ. This is how church splits when they are divided. The Corinthians divided themselves because they wanted to follow the religious elite instead of a body in and operating in one body, which is the body of Christ. One of my hopes for this church, that is that we are never divided on petty issues. I hope that we will continue to operate as one body that is being controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we don't, we too will be like the Corinthian church saying, I follow Pastor Gus, or I follow Mel, or I follow the elders, or I follow Pastor Travis. Church, it is idolatrous to elevate someone in your heart just because this individual holds a leadership role in the church. Or because this individual is famous because he's a basketball player like LeBron James. Or because this individual is a famous rap star. If you are more excited to follow a well-known person than Christ, that means you are worshiping that individual, then you are worshiping Christ, and that is idolatrous. You are worshiping a creature than, rather than the creator. Now, what are the implications of the gospel? Although the gospel is not about the preacher, however, the gospel must be preached. Paul said in our text, the gospel I preach. The Greek meaning for the word preach means to bring glad tidings or good news. Preaching the gospel is one of the implications of the gospel. If the gospel is not being preached, then people cannot be saved from their sins. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Therefore, I have to ask, are we really preaching the gospel? Are we preaching the gospel to our community so that they may heed to the gospel message 
and repent of their sins. Ladies and gentlemen, you must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people may turn from their sins and turn to Christ. There is no excuses that why that we cannot preach the gospel. Even Christ, our Lord, understood this importance because when he was in a grave for three days, he went to the people, the spirits of Noah time, to go and preach the gospel. This is what Peter said. That he preached the good news of those who was dead for those who disobeyed the gospel that was being preached by Noah. Another implication of the gospel is that the gospel saved sinners from sin, eternal death, and God's wrathful judgment. Look at the text. Verse 1 and 2 says, The gospel by which you are being saved. If you're reading from a different translation, it probably just says saved. But I like how the ESV puts it. The gospel by which you are being saved. We are sinners. And since we sin against the holy and righteous God, church, we deserve God's eternal wrath. We deserve hell. For those who was not suffer God's eternal judgment are those who have repented of their sins and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken their sinful punishment by being crucified on the cross. First Peter verse chapter two, verse 24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, this is the implication of the gospel that is save sinners. Third implication is the importance of the gospel. As I mentioned before, is that we do a lot of things to remind ourselves of different tasks. But the importance of the gospel, as Paul puts it in our text, as Paul said it in our text, he said, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe, believe in vain. For I deliver to you of first importance. After all the sinfulness that the Corinthian church went through, Paul is reminding them what is important. So we too need to be reminded. We've got to make sure that we are preaching the gospel to ourselves. That our priorities are in order, that the gospel becomes first 
of all things before we even think about doing something else. The more busy we are in our lives, the more, the more we lose sight of the gospel. For example, parents, don't answer this question. How often do you preach the gospel to your kids? How often do you sit down at a table and present the gospel of Christ to your kids? See, this demonstrate our failure of not recognizing the importance of the gospel. Just like the Corinthian church. Just like the Corinthian church. The last question. What is not, I mean, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Mark, Jr., Dante, Terea, and everybody else. Listen, this is very important and pay attention because how you answer this question, how you answer this question will determine your life. It will determine your eternal state. The gospel is about the birth of Christ. The gospel is about the birth of Christ. And why I say birth of Christ? Because it's about Christ being promised to come to earth. As we recall in first in Genesis chapter three, that Christ will be born to crush the head of the serpent. Another promise. Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant will come and suffer on your behalf. Another promise. And when we get to Luke, how he talks about Mary receiving the promise from Gabriel, that she will be impregnated, bore the Son of God by the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. When we get to John, the Gospel of John, how John said that Christ took on flesh, that he is the Word of God, and the Word became flesh. That is a promise. The gospel is about the life of Christ. Jesus exemplified the gospel by living it out. He did not revow evil for evil. It's easy for us to be just sinful as we can. And we lose sight of the gospel. But I encourage you to continue to focus on Christ. Continue to exemplify who Christ is and what he did while he was on this earth. There's plenty of times that Christ, in his righteous anger, could have got just, <laughs> he could have just destroy everyone. But he didn't. 
He was never angry unjustly. The third, the gospel is about the blood of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, turn to First Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 18. It's about the blood of Christ. And I really want you to get this. This is what First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. With the precious blood of Of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not know why that we continue to live the way we live. I don't know why. In other words, we spit on the in the face of our Lord. If we're living unholy. Listen. The gospel is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's about his blood. If the Corinthian church did not stand upon the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, then their faith was in vain. The doctrine of Christ's death and resurrection is the foundation of your Christian faith. The removal of this particular doctrine means that you are still dead in your sins. That not only you would die in your sins, you will face God's eternal wrath. Because ladies and gentlemen, because if Christ did not raise from the grave, that means we were not raised from the grave. That means God will pour out his wrath upon you because you, because you are dead. This is what Paul is stating in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13 through 17. This is what he said. He said this to to the Corinthians. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is fruitile and you are still in your sins. Then all, then also, all who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ we have hope 
in life, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Of all people to most be pitied. Why? Because the world should look upon us if Christ, well, if Christ did not raise, the world should look upon us and say we are some foolish people. Because we're believing in something that never happened. We're believing in something that if Christ is still in the dead, then we are just living our lives trying to be holy. Christ is still in the, de- in the grave, ladies and gentlemen. God, the Father, God of the universe, would judge you. But I praise God. I thank God that Christ has been risen. Because this is what Paul said in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. Ladies and gentlemen, your faith is not in vain. But for those who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, you are still dead. You're still dead in your sins. You're not being represented by Christ who suffered on the cross for your behalf. You are being represented by Adam who disobeyed God's instructions. And since Adam is the federal head for all mankind, then you are still being represented by, for, by Adam, not by Christ. But since Christ came and he is the new Adam, you can be represented by him. I say this, if you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit preaching this glorious gospel to you in your heart, I pray that you do not leave this place until you talk to an elder or anybody else who know and know how to present the gospel. Because if you walk out this door not believing in Christ, and if you die, you will Die in your sins, and you will go to hell. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for these precious souls. I pray that although my inadequate preaching still communicated in a way that it was impressed upon everybody's hearts, Because, Father, I know that you are willing to glorify your son, Jesus Christ. And I ask you to glorify him this day because we are a people who are being lost, Heavenly Father.
we are a people that waver and not follow Christ like we should. So, Father, I pray that you will glorify your Son. I pray by the Holy Spirit that you will convict people of their sins right now. Because you can only do it, Father. Lord Jesus, you can do it too. Father, glorify your Son so that he can glorify you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.